It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. From AccuWeather.com, this is Everything Under the Sun, our weekly podcast with stories and interviews about the weather and climate. And this is our second in our summer series as we get ready for the second weekend in June and the early week beyond. I'm meteorologist Dean DeVore, and I welcome you into this week's episode where we will talk with AccuWeather meteorologist and one of our astronomy experts, Brian Leda, about some of the highlights that you can expect as summer rolls on in the nighttime sky. And we'll talk to Liz Bentley, chief executive of the Royal Meteorological Society, who, in association with AccuWeather, is conducting their annual Weather Photographer of the Year contest for 2020. And finally, AccuWeather meteorologist Bill Digger and I take a look at the weather over the next several days. As we roll into the middle of June, it's time to talk about everything under the sun. As a youngster growing up, I was blessed with a family who taught me early on the amazing fun that it is to find a dark spot on a clear, cool night, set up some chaise lounges or beach towels or blankets and sit there and spend a few hours looking up and discovering all the fun things in the skies above us at night. For my morning radio work, I get the privilege, if you can call it the privilege, of getting up at around 3 a.m. and seeing that early sky every morning. And over the last week or so, I've enjoyed seeing the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn with the waning moon. And even over the last couple of nights, Mars is starting to get involved. So I thought it'd be a good time to visit with our friend AccuWeather meteorologist Brian Leda, one of our great contributors to our AccuWeather astronomy stories on AccuWeather.com and our AccuWeather astronomy Twitter account to see what other highlights may be in the skies over us as we head through this coming summer. Brian, thanks for being with us. Man, uh, it's getting up there. How long have you been with AccuWeather now? I'm getting close to a decade with AccuWeather, and I've kind of found a little niche in the company headlining a lot of the astronomy content that we do. Yeah, you started as one of our general forecasters, as so many of our folks do, and then moved into this. Uh, We see your byline and your name on AccuWeather.com. Just tell us a little bit about where you grew up, where you went to school, and again, what was kind of the things that got you into this astronomy? So I was born and raised in Pennsylvania. I went to school at Millersville University for meteorology. And then I got a job at AccuWeather just as a forecaster. And then, like I said, I just kind of found my way into where I am now. I've always had a fascination with space and astronomy, though. So when it came time to write stories and talk about, you know, how the weather is going to impact things like meteor showers, that was an instant draw to me. And so here I am, and I write a lot about upcoming astronomy events, how to see them, and if the weather will be good for your viewing in your area. Know Millersville pretty well myself, Mr. Leda. Grew up there, so and then, of course, uh, came up here to State College. So great meteorology program. We have a few Millersville grads amongst us now in AccuWeather, so it's great. So, look, um, I've always been a fan. Uh, I grew up in Millersville. I had a cabin up in the mountains of central Pennsylvania, and those were the fun nights when you go out spotting, Brian, and we'd stop in the middle of this dark field with no light pollution within miles, and you'd, you'd open up and you'd see so much. I mean, 
you know, you think you see a lot in like Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, in terms of the sky. And then you get out to one of these places and it's just, it's just amazing. And what also is amazing to me now, Brian, is how with electronics and our phone and our iPads, it's, it's like having a, a virtual sky map with you at all times to just figure out exactly what you're looking at. That's exciting, right? Yeah. If you have a smartphone in your hand, anyone could go stargazing and try to find exactly what they're looking for. A lot of apps, you just, you point it in the sky and it'll tell you what star you're looking at, what constellation you're looking at. So anyone could be an amateur astronomer uh, just with a smartphone. So, Brian, one of the things I've been noticing here the last few mornings is the conjunction between, well, it was the moon and then what, Saturn and Jupiter. You know, not only are there meteor showers, but also this time of year, this real conjunction of all the planets and the, and the moon make for some interesting things. Are there some big things like that coming up here in the next few months? It seems like there's always something to look for in the night sky, whether it be just a full moon or the moon next to a planet, because that makes it a lot easier to find things like a certain planet. If you're looking for Mars and you know next week that the moon's going to be next to Mars, that makes it a heck of a lot easier to find that planet in the sky. Uh, and this summer, actually, is going to be a great summer for stargazing. Basically, all summer long, Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars are going to be visible in the night sky. And periodically, the moon is going to swing right by, making for great stargazing opportunities. If you have a telescope or if you don't have a telescope, you can see them with your naked eye. Talk about that. I think some people get, well, I can't do stargazing. I don't have all this fancy equipment. But again, uh, if you can get out into some areas that don't have as much light pollution. That, that is a major problem, though, now in a lot of these metropolitan areas, getting enough lack of light to be able to see some of this stuff, right? Yeah, if you want to see some of the constellations, you will have to head out to some darker areas. Like you said, you know, drive out of town a couple miles. That can be all it takes to see a lot more stars. You know, just take a five, 10 miles outside of town away from the lights, and you'll be able to see a lot more. Uh, however, planets like Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, they're bright enough where you could see them in the brightest of cities. If you're living in LA or New York City, even though there's a lot of light pollution, these planets are going to outshine that light pollution. Uh, so you could look for these pretty much anywhere you live, as long as it's not cloudy. We're talking with Brian Leda. He is a meteorologist and journalist for AccuWeather and uh, our AccuWeather Astronomy. You can get uh, information from both of our Twitter handles at AccuWeather and at Accu, A-C-C-U, Astronomy. Brian's Twitter is W-X-L-A-D-A. That's a little weather geek shorthand for weather is W-X around here. So W-X-L-A-D-A, Brian Leda. Brian, let's talk about, you know, the big ticket items to me, it seems, during summers are the meteor showers. And certainly uh, it looks like they're right on cue this year. Can you talk and step us through some of the months and some of the meteor showers that we're going to be looking at as we go through this uh, upcoming summer? When I was talking about Jupiter and Saturn, you can see those pretty much any night. You know, if you step outside tonight and it's cloudy, you can go out tomorrow night. And if it's not cloudy, you'll be able to see it. But with meteor showers, you really need to do planning and you really need to know when to go outside to look. It's looking like our next meteor shower is not going to be till the end of July, so you have some time to plan. Maybe plan a trip to go out to one of these dark areas away from town, you know, to spend a night under the stars. Uh, the farther away you are from light pollution, the more shooting stars you're going to be able to see. So the next meteor shower that we have coming up is in late July, the Delta Aquarids. Uh, and that's happening on the night of July 28th into July 29th. Uh, and you're going to be able to see about 20 meteors per hour so you'll be able to see one every couple minutes, and those are going to be visible pretty much anywhere in the sky. A lot of people think you need to look in one specific direction, and that's not the case. As long as you're looking up, you'll be able to see it. And I know that sounds kind of dumb, you know, <laughs> just look to the sky. Right. But it's really the truth because they streak everywhere in the sky. 
The fun ones are like, now I get up about 2.30 in the morning. I'm driving into work sometimes at 3.30. And the fun ones to me are the ones that seem to like come right over my car once in a while. You know, this big flash of green light. And, you know, sometimes it swears like it, it will. And some of these big meteors will, um, uh, and we call those fireballs, right? The fireball meteors uh, that can light up the whole sky. I remember as a kid being out in the middle of the night with my parents and seeing that just quick flash. Um, you know, every meteor shower, you, you know, you gave a, a number there of terms of meteors per hour and the expectations. But what I find with like in regular meteorology, the weather is sometimes those predictions are off a little bit. Sometimes it's a little more active than we thought in terms of the number of meteors. And sometimes it's a little less. Is that right? Yeah. Meteor shower is a bit trickier to forecast than, you know, it's going to rain tomorrow at this time. With meteor showers, we generally know when they happen every year and typically what they bring, but there is some variance to that. Some years, a meteor shower will be particularly good. For example, two years ago, uh, the biggest meteor shower in December, the Geminids, it typically brings about 120 meteors per hour. But back two years ago, it was like 160, 170. So it really overperformed. And the Perseids, that's coming up the night of August 11th, August 12th. That's a great meteor shower. That's my favorite. I was, uh, when I was a kid, we were, that's our two-week vacation in the mountains, early August. And like I said, we would go out in the middle and it was just amazing. You could sit there and, and you'd count. We'd have a little counter and we'd count them, how many meteors we'd see and we'd get up into the hundreds over a two, three hour period. Yeah, if you're going to go looking for a meteor shower this summer, the Perseids is the one to go see because it's just phenomenal. And that could range anywhere from 60 to 100 meteors per hour. Either way, it's a good show. 60 meteors per hour is one a minute. So definitely mark that on your calendar, August 11th to August 12th. You don't want to miss that. Is it better more towards dawn or is it better closer to midnight? Or is there a better time to see these in terms of the overnight? Uh, I remember I used to think it was cool to be a kid and stay up as late as possible. Can you give us any guidance on that? Yeah, with both the Perseids in August and the Delta Aquarids in July, the second half of the night's going to be the time to look. However, that doesn't mean that you won't be able to see some in the evening. I've gone out in the evening for the Perseids, you know, 9, 10 o'clock at night and still been able to see quite a few. So you'd be able to catch some during the first half of the night. But if you really want to take in the full show, see the shower's full potential, typically after midnight, maybe even after 2 a.m. So put on a pot of coffee and, you know, get ready for a long night. <laughs> It'll be well worth it. All right. So we've been talking about uh, the conjunctions in terms of the planets. We've been talking about some of these great meteor showers. But the biggest ticket item is an eclipse. We have a lunar eclipse coming this, uh, this summer here, Brian. Yeah, in less than a month, we have a lunar eclipse on the night of the 4th of July. So if you're out with friends and family watching firework displays or maybe having a campfire, uh, late on the night of the 4th of July into the early morning of the 5th of July, the moon will be passing behind the Earth's shadow, creating a lunar eclipse. Does the whole country see it? I know sometimes on these eclipses, it can be partial in certain parts of the country. Is this right over the wheelhouse of all of the United States? Yeah, so this one is, you know, a special for both North and South America. Basically, all of North America is going to be seeing this lunar eclipse. It's going to begin at a little after 11 p.m. Eastern time on July 4th. Then it's going to be the best time to see it about 12.30 a.m. Eastern time. And then it'll come to an end about 1.50 a.m. Eastern time. So you might have to do a little math there if, you know, you live on the West Coast. But the entire country is going to be able to see this lunar eclipse. It's not going to be spectacular. It's not going to be the moon turning red and everything. But part of the moon is going to be faded a little bit. It's going to be a bit darker. This is what we call a penumbral lunar eclipse. So it's going to be a little subtle, but if you're looking for it, you'll definitely see it. 
And it's a great way to end, you know, your 4th of July celebrations, you know, watching some fireworks go off and turn your head and look at the moon and watch a lunar eclipse. How better does that get? Yeah. And, and some places may not see the same kind of fireworks that they have had before. So this is a little bit of nature uh, kind of chiming in and giving us a little help here as we continue to fight COVID-19. So the keys are to find, try to find places with the less light pollution. You also have to kind of look to uh, in, a, in a forecast uh, your visibility at night a lot of times affected in the summer by the amount of humidity in the air. So a, a drier, cooler night will lend better stargazing than a warmer, more humid night where the sky may be a little bit hazy. So that's something you got to watch too as you go through the rest of the summer. Yeah, definitely. Humidity can be a factor. It won't completely obscure the sky. You know, it's not clouds, but it definitely adds a bit of haze and makes it a bit more difficult to see. Things might be a bit fuzzier compared to winter nights when it's crystal clear and you really see the stars twinkling because... It's a lot drier in the winter months. So that's one reason why the winter is typically a better time to stargaze, but also in the winter time, you need to get ready for colder temperatures. So summer stargazing, yeah, you need to deal with that humidity and the bunginess, but it's also milder, so you won't need to bundle up. We've been talking with Brian Leda. Brian, uh, you can see his work on AccuWeather.com. You can, again, go to our Twitter handles, uh, AccuWeather, at AccuWeather, and then the one that we have especially for astronomy and that's ACU, A-C-C-U, Astronomy, A-S-T-R-O-N-O-M-Y, ACU Astronomy to get really, uh, you know, updates, especially when things are popping in the sky. You guys keep that uh, updated very well. I check that an awful lot. Um, I, do you like spaceweather.com? That's something I'll use a lot to, to keep track of some things, especially, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about is auroras and uh, the aurora borealis. And so, that's a, a good way that I keep a, an eye on that because that's a fun thing. I'm always trying to chase an aurora borealis here in the summer. Yeah, that's a whole other can of worms and a lot going into that. But if you're looking to see the northern lights or the aurora, uh, spaceweather.com would be a great site to follow every day. Uh, if there's a chance to see them, they'll be posting about that. But if you're looking for just a typical every night stargazing, I recommend earthsky.org. They basically post an entry every day about what you could see in the sky tonight, whether it be the moon next to a planet, highlighting a specific constellation. They always are changing up what you can look for in the night sky. So if you're looking for a challenge, go there and every night try to look for what they're talking about. Brian, thanks so much. We look forward to checking with you. Maybe we'll, when we get a little later in the summer, we get to some of these uh, bigger meteor showers. We'll check in again and talk about those and get ready for then the fall and the winter in the sky. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to being back on. Make sure you check for Brian's stories and all of our coverage about the weather and astronomy on our website, AccuWeather.com, and follow our specific astronomy Twitter account. It's AccuAstronomy, A-C-C-U, Astronomy on Twitter. Up next, we go across the pond and preview the Royal Meteorological Society's Weather Photographer of the Year contest. That's coming next on AccuWeather's Everything Under the Sun. Listen to Weather Insider every weekday for a discussion on trending weather news with me, Bernie Reno, and Evan Myers. You'll get detailed insight into major weather events and learn the why behind the weather. Just subscribe to Weather Insider on your favorite podcast platforms today. 
Welcome back to Everything Under the Sun. I'm Dean DeVore. The Royal Meteorological Society has a 170-year history of engaging, enthusing, and educating Great Britain and the world about weather and climate science. And one of the ways they have done that recently is by conducting a contest to choose the Weather Photographer of the Year over the last five years. And for the second time, RMETS has partnered with AccuWeather to help conduct and promote this year's contest. So let's Let's take a few minutes to find out more. We are joined by the executive director of the Royal Meteorological Society, Liz Bentley, and our very own social media director here at AccuWeather, meteorologist Jesse Farrell, who, along with Liz, is one of this year's judges. Well, Liz, this is exciting. The uh, Royal Meteorological Society, 170 years, uh, really been a part of the meteorological community in uh, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, uh, just like, you know, our kind of situation here with the American Meteorological Society. It's kind of the same situation. And you've uh, been extremely, this this organization is, goes back this history. Wasn't Armets involved in back in the D-Day forecasting? Is that uh, something I've been reading about and looking at the history of this organization? Yeah, so we've um, we've had a number of presidents over that 170 years, and uh, James Stagg was one of our presidents. He was uh, involved in producing the D-Day forecasts. We have a lot of uh, historical artifacts around the D-Day landing, so we have maps showing uh, the observations across Europe, and there's some big gaps across Europe. We didn't get any observations from Germany. We got a few from the resistance in France, and obviously observations from a few ships out in the Atlantic. And it's absolutely amazing how someone could hand draw a synoptic chart with the low pressure and the weather fronts from just, you know, a small selection of observations. And then Stagg himself looked at the forecast and it was quite a settled period back in June 1944. And, you know, he looked at the situation, but thought there's a, there is a gap, there's a window of opportunity, a 24 window of opportunity, 24 hour window. Mm. And the Germans themselves thought no one is ever going to cross the channel in the stormy conditions that were kind of in the forecast. But James Stagg saw this window of opportunity and, and we went for it. And the rest, as I say, is history. It really is. And, uh, I'm, you know, I know we've talked about that at length in, with some of our folks, uh, including Elliot Abrams, has done a lot of uh, research and talked about the history of that. And, and it's amazing. And I know how amazed we are here at AccuWeather and proud to be part of this contest that you've been running. How many years has the... Uh Weather Photographer of the Year contest been going? This will be our fifth year. And each year, the, the number of submissions, number of photographs that are submitted almost doubles each year. So we're expecting, you know, close to 10,000 submissions this year, you know, really significant. And, and the quality of those images each year is absolutely astounding. It, it really amazes me some of the images that we, we do get. And it makes it quite a challenge then to both shortlist and then obviously choose an overall winner for the Weather Photographer of the Year. It can be uh, quite a challenging job for the judges. And of course, this year, the situation with uh, COVID-19 and the fight against the coronavirus has made it a little bit more challenging. Normally, you accept, uh, what, uh, entries from things that are happening from uh, when the previous year's contest ends to this the deadline of this year, but you're actually going to extend the opportunity for people to put in more because of the inability maybe for them to have uh, been traveling around during uh, the COVID situation? Yeah, that's right. A little bit different this year, just recognizing that, you know, as people are, are kind of self-isolating and in lockdown, it's a bit more difficult to get out and take photographs of, you know, spectacular weather images. So we're letting people go back into their archives. And, um, you know, so it's an opportunity, I guess, if you're, you're stuck at home and you can't get out, that you can actually start to look back through, you know, some of your digital images that you took from over 
over the last kind of few years. We're, we're happy to go back in time a little bit here. And actually, again, even though, you know, people in lockdown, there's, there's still an opportunity, certainly here in the UK, you know, we can still get out and about in the day. And if you've got a camera to hand or your phone to hand, you can capture some spectacular images, even during the, you know, the COVID pandemic. So a little bit of a mixture. I think there will be some current images, but we're, we're certainly welcoming some archive images as well. You have two age groups, uh, 17 and under, and then over 17 or 18 and over. Yeah. <laughs> British do British do that differently <laughs> than the Americans do. And when they, but uh, that's, uh, I love seeing the cultivation of passion, not only for photography, but for weather and climate for these younger kids who are obviously growing up in a time when there's a lot of debate about the weather and climate and change and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think the Young Weather Photographer of the Year competition is is a really interesting one. Another one that's kind of grown in uh, in size, the number of submissions year on year. It's really interesting to see how many kind of budding amateur photographers and those who are really fascinated by the weather kind of combine those two hobbies and in, in are sharing some really fascinating images. And, and as a judge, you know, it, it's it's really interesting when we do the final judging for the Weather Photographer of the Year. We we look at both. We will we will consider the the younger age group alongside those kind of, you know, old and trusted photographers out there who've maybe been doing it for a few years. And they're on a par. They very much, you know, compete with each other. So we do get some fantastic images from both age groups. And, you know, I'm, I'm almost sure we will do this year. Talking with Liz Bentley, Royal Meteorological Society, AccuWeather partnering with our Mets to uh, help sponsor. We're going to be putting, uh, as we get these uh, submissions in, we're going to be posting them and uh, we are pleased to welcome in our own Jesse Farrell. He has uh, been with AccuWeather. How many years, Jesse, now with AccuWeather yourself? 23 years. Wow, you're right with me. 23 years. And, uh, you know, Jesse's one of those people that he found a niche early in AccuWeather. Uh, he thought that uh, social media and sharing of weather information and that kind of stuff was going to take off. And you were right in that wheelhouse. So, uh, Jesse, uh, Welcome, and I know you're excited to be one of the judges to help judge uh, who is the weather photographer of the year through the Royal Meteorological Society. Yeah, I've uh, always been a weather photographer myself ever since I was a kid, even before I went to college for meteorology. But uh, yeah, it's it's going to be nice to get a look at all those beautiful weather photos from all over the world. And as you said, we will be showing some of those on the AccuWeather Twitter account, both past winners and some of the photos that have been submitted this year um, over the next month or so um, when the contest is still open. So there's two criteria, right? There's there's actual judging going on by judges, and then the public gets a chance to vote too. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, that's right. So we, as the judges, will shortlist. Um, it typically gets down to something like 25 to 30 images that we shortlist, and we'll make our own decisions on which ones we think will win the Weather Photographer of the Year. But we open that shortlist out to the public, and we do a public vote very active on social media, uh, particularly if the photographers themselves have quite a lot of following. You can see them really trying to trying to drive up some support for their own images. But yeah, that's a really popular thing that we've uh, we've been trialing for the last few years, and it it just gets a lot of traction from uh, you know people who maybe haven't submitted this year to think about maybe be submitting next year as well, uh, gets a lot of public interest. And, and the variety of pictures that we have in that shortlist, because as judges, it's quite easy to be tempted to just select images that have, you know, the pizzazz, you know, anything that's got lightning and tornadoes in. But actually, we look for a really good range of images. So 
even the benign weather, something that is quite settled, relaxed, some kind of shallow fog, a little bit of mist. Mm. You know, those kind of images are, are really just as important, really, as, as categories to have. Uh, and so the shortlist will have a real mixture. So it's really interesting just to see how the public votes. So I know AccuWeather is excited to be partnering with uh, the Royal Meteorological Society once again. Jesse, you and uh, the others will be judging. Again, what are some things that would think that would stand out to you that you might be looking for in some of these photographs? Uh, are you looking for composition? Are you looking for subject matter? What what are the things that are striking to you about a weather photograph? Well, a lot of the things that we'll be looking at, such as composition, um, do really relate to general photography contests. But we're also looking to see how people can kind of show us weather expressing itself, I think. Elizabeth, again, we're excited. Second time AccuWeather has been part of this in the five years. And uh, what excites you about the partnership between RMETS and AccuWeather to get this contest going? Yeah, for me, it's really about uh, being able to reach out to to the audiences that, you know, engage with meteorology, with weather, you know, both just in their own interest to be kind of finding out about the forecast or to be educated about why the weather does what it does. But then to kind of combine that, we've taken some stunning images and been able to to kind of, you know, share that passion, that that drive that people have. There's almost a kind of a secret passion some people have that, you know, they're, they're, most of us are interested in the weather, whether it's wanting to know the forecast or a little bit more about what the weather's doing. But it's almost like a secret kind of uh, passion that people have. And I think they can share that through the weather photographer of the year. So it's great to be partnering with you guys again to be able to kind of reach out to those larger audiences both here in the UK but right around the world it's uh, it's a really popular international competition certainly looking forward to checking back in with Liz and Jesse as we get farther along in the process uh, that point in late summer when we get their picks for the finalists the judges picks and then we turn it over to the public for their voting. We'll certainly check in then and then have the final announcement of the year. If you would like more information, you can go to the RMETS website. It's rmets.org. That's R-M-E-T-S dot org. And if you would like to go directly to the place where you can enter this contest, it's photocrowd.com slash W-P-O-T-Y, photocrowd, that's P-H-O-T-O crowd.com at W-P-O-T-Y Weather Photographer of the Year. That's what that stands for. When we come back, do we have things to look at in the sky? Are we having the ability to look into the sky at night with some clear weather? How's the beach weather in places? And do we have any big storms in the forecast? AccuWeather's Bill Dager is back with me to talk about this upcoming weekend and beyond right here on Everything Under the Sun. Make AccuWeather Daily a part of your daily routine. Enable the flash briefing and say, Alexa, what's my flash briefing? To access this content on Google Assistant, all you have to say is, Hey Google, talk to AccuWeather Daily. You'll get the top trending weather story of the day, every day. Welcome back to Everything Under the Sun. I'm meteorologist Dean DeVores. We kicked off this summer series last week. I remember telling you that part of this show every week here in the summer series will be an extended forecast. As these podcasts will come out every Friday morning, you can either get a head start on the weekend and jump ahead either to the beginning of the week and find out whether your vacation or plans to mow the yard or whatever is good here as we go through the next several days. And I'm joined to do that by one of my radio colleagues and one of the guys who... Uh, Keeps me informed every morning a little bit behind the scenes as well. Let's welcome in Bill Digger to Everything Under the Sun. 
Bill, it's good to talk to you. You know, this is all Millersville U Day here on uh, well, at least uh, two thirds of this as uh, Brian Leda went to Millersville and you're an alum of my hometown, Millersville University. We've got a few of those here at AccuWeather. We do. Yeah. Throughout the years, we've had uh, plenty of Millersville graduates in AccuWeather, many still there and uh, hard to believe uh, it's been 11 years since I graduated. I can't believe that. And you came here right uh, from uh, Millersville to to AccuWeather? I I came here a year later. I started in 2010. Actually, I think next weekend is my 10-year, we call them AccuVersaries, I guess. AccuVersaries, yes. You know, one of the things I love about Bill, folks, is, uh, well, not only is he a great forecaster, but he's one of my uh, favorite guys to work with in the morning because he always finds little tidbits and interesting things and usually uh, based on the internet and Twitter and stuff. And you can follow, what's, what's your Twitter handle mr dagger oh it's m-u-w-x guy um, oh there you go m-u there is some weather stuff on there <laughs> m-u-w-x shorthand for weather m-u for millersville university and guy all right so what we're doing here is looking at this weather going into this uh, second weekend of june and into the following week beyond as folks are listening to the podcast last weekend we had weather going on everywhere we had tropical storms we had uh, derechos we had all kinds of fun and frivolity and while we still have some problems getting into the weekend, at least along the eastern seaboard, especially uh, late week here, and as we go into the weekend itself, it's a little unsettled. Uh, it does look like generally, Bill, this weekend across the country is much quieter than this past weekend. Yeah, really, really nice to end the week. And as we head into the weekend, really a big area of high pressure moving in uh, from Canada that will bring a more refreshing air mass across the Great Lakes and into parts of the Northeast. Another area of high pressure in the upper levels of the atmosphere in in the Rockies and in the plains, keeping it dry there as well. So you really have to go to the the coasts to see any action as far as precipitation is concerned. I think the Pacific Northwest will see some some rain and uh, we'll also have some rain as well along the mid-Atlantic coast, maybe the outer banks of North Carolina not having a good beach weekend. But uh, yeah, it's just really those two parts of the country where uh, we're expecting precipitation and Pretty much uh, everywhere in between looks pretty nice. So if you're looking at the uh, weekend weather map with us, you can find those on AccuWeather.com too. It looks like, you know, what we call an undulating uh, jet stream, kind of a little almost a mega block developing here where it's dipping in the western Mm -hmm. uh, northwest. It's dipping in the uh, eastern seaboard in the Great Lakes. And then there's that nice ridge of warmth and nice. I'll tell you what, if I had to be anywhere this weekend, I think I picked St. Louis. They've got just, it's perfect from today through the weekend. Low 80s, sunshine, low humidity. They're right in the good stuff right there. Yeah, and, and they'll take low humidity this time of year. Yes, uh, may have dew points dipping down into the 40s uh, for a few hours there this weekend. That's That doesn't usually happen uh, in the middle Not of June. And, no. and, and they're going to take those high temperatures in the low to mid 80s any day as well. And typically, it's close to 90 there pretty much every day this time of year. So yeah, I, I think St. Louis is a good place to book a flight too. As we look around elsewhere too, I'm thinking that, uh, you know, that warmth building Texas and up into the plains, you know, as we then transition past the weekend, you know, you mentioned how the Carolina is probably not a good beach uh, weekend there. And then really that whole scenario where we're going to keep fighting between cooler, drier air that's trying to push in from Canada and warmer, more humid air bumping up against in, into it, that mid-Atlantic 
Carolina's area. That's going to be an area we're going to have to watch early next week, Bill, for the potential for more repeated rounds of rain and some flooding potential. That's right. Yeah, the jet stream really flattens out by the time we get to the early and middle part of next week. It kind of leaves that uh, area of low pressure and disturbed weather behind. It sort of becomes what's called a cutoff low, just kind of meanders around the southeast, the interior, mid-Atlantic perhaps. And that's going to mean a couple of days worth of of, uh, showers and thunderstorms. And there is the risk of uh, some flooding. Uh, Could see a couple of inches of rain when all is said and done by the end of next week when the storm finally, hopefully, uh, either fades away or moves out. So it looks like a little bit of a soggy uh, picture here, at least uh, from the nation's capital south through the Carolinas. You know, we'll work on those details as we get closer to the weekend and early next week because these cutoff low pressure systems can be uh, notoriously hard to predict. Then the other thing we're quickly watching is an area of low pressure that remains unorganized uh, as we end the week and get into the weekend west of the Antilles, but that could make a crossover into the Caribbean as we get into the weekend. And, you know, we are watching uh, some development possibilities as you get into that area in the Caribbean and over towards uh, the Yucatan and, uh, and the southern half of the Gulf here next week. So that looks like something else we'll have to keep an eye on. Yeah, it could be a hello uh, Dolly before long here. Yeah, we've <laughs> already been up to uh, the sea name in the uh, in the uh, list of uh, storm names, the earliest we've ever been to the sea name in the Atlantic Basin. And yeah, there is an area of disturbed weather there east of the Caribbean islands that will work its way west and bring some showers and thunderstorms on some vacations there. But you're right, it's getting to be that time of year where the water heating up in the Caribbean Sea, especially in the Gulf of Mexico as well. And when you have any anything that's tracking west across this part of the basin, keep an eye on it for sure. Now, one thing playing against that is there... There's a lot of what's called wind shear across the Atlantic Basin right now. The whole basin seems to be pretty flush with it. So it's going to be a battle for this system to uh, develop even as it moves into the warmer waters. Bill, thanks so much. That's AccuWeather meteorologist Bill Dagger. You can hear him on many of our great radio stations pretty much every weekend. Uh, Mornings, he's on WBBM in Chicago, and we thank Bill for his help. We also thank our friends uh, Liz Bentley and our own AccuWeather meteorologist Jesse Farrell, our social media director, talking about that amazing contest, the Weather Photographer of the Year in association with AccuWeather.com and our friends at Royal Meteorological Society. It is going to be an amazing contest. And Brian Leda joined us in the first segment to talk about astronomy. Friends, if you have a story idea, want to ask a question, make a comment, it's easy to do so. In fact, I was giving you my personal email address, but now we got one for the podcast itself. It's accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com. Accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com is the address. You can maybe reference everything under the sun, or we kind of say E-U-T-S for shorthand around here. I'd like to also thank our executive producers. They do an amazing job, not only with my podcast, but all of our podcasts, Ken Prell and Andrew Robb. And always a big thank you to the amazing team members we have at AccuWeather who work so hard all day and at night to keep you up to date on the latest information about the weather to protect you and your property. We do it with love here at AccuWeather.com. Friends, it's been a great episode. We look forward to next week. We'll be into the second half of June as summer rolls on in our summer series with everything under the sun. I'm AccuWeather meteorologist Dean DeVore. Be safe and well, and I'll talk to you next week. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 